What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Surf and Sales podcast. We are in season five, Richard, and I believe that we are close to or have eclipsed the 500 total episodes number. We are close. I don't know if we've eclipsed it. You know what? You'll have to come back to the next episode. By the next episode, I'll have that number. We'll have the answer. Whenever we do have the 500th episode, I think that we should polish off a little bottle of tequila while we have the episode and it just gets progressively worse yes. as the episode goes on. What do you yes. think? I think that's great. And I think we should see if this guest wants to join. Maybe we'll get a couple of guests to come to. Yeah. The- we have a round table. So yes. the, the amount of time we make an ass of ourselves is actually diminished a little bit because there's more guests to help us out. Nah, I don't know about that. It just means that, you know, you know me, come on. Yeah. Then no, your noise will cut through. Well, we, we're joined today by the co-founder, CEO of a company called Wizza, ironically purple and logo with a wizard hat, and somewhat in the same space potentially as another famous e-wizardry kind of company. Maybe we'll talk about that. It's Stephen Hakami from Toronto, Canada, CEO of Wizza. What's up, Stephen? How are you? Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. Tell us a little bit about the story of the logo that I see behind you, <laughs> which I presume is the Wizza cap, the wizard hat. It is hat. a wizard hat sitting yeah. above me here. How did you hit um, on that? Yeah, we so we were trying to come up with a name, and it was a tool we were using when we first started Wizza. Um, I was doing a bit of like agency freelance work, doing cold email campaigns for different clients, and we pieced together a bunch of tools to kind of export LinkedIn sales navigator searches, find contact information, then verify it, uh, and then reach out. And we kind of like internally dubbed it the wizard. Um, So when we realized that it could be a product in and of itself, we wanted to call it wizard, um, but then realized if you Google wizard, it's never going to come up. So wizard.co was available. um, And we thought wizard has a nice ring to it, nice four letter domain. uh, And we did that. And so yeah, purple felt felt like the the magic sort of color, but there are tons of brands now that like there's a company called Wiz that came that's that's pretty massive. They're like Wiz.io. Um, there's Wizza with two Z's. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of competing magical brands. Well, tell tell everybody about Wizza. Give give everybody the quick elevator pitch. Like, what do you all do? Who do you sell to? What space are you in? That kind of stuff. So everybody has the context. Yeah. Yeah. So we essentially provide contact information. We started, uh, I was working in sales myself for a conference company. And um, what's interesting about an event is uh, you're starting from scratch every new event that gets launched. So we'd be selling tickets and sponsorship to an event in Chicago. And then two months later to one in LA. And we had to basically build an entire new data set. Um, so we're doing a lot of prospecting. We preferred to all work off LinkedIn rather than like zoom info. We found it was just more up to date. Um, but there's no way to really like export searches at the time. Um, and so that's kind of what we initially solved for was exporting searches from LinkedIn. Um, what we found is that people generally prefer the data that's on LinkedIn and they trust the job titles. They're more up to date. Um, and so we kind of nailed in on that. And now we're a full prospecting suite that's entirely powered by LinkedIn data. So anytime you request any contact details for anyone, we do a live check on the profile uh, of that person. 
and make sure they're still at you know that company, that job title, and update those records. You um, follow that, Richard? Because yeah, I'm. I, I'm. I'm. If curious. you remember, if you remember back in the day when you had to pick up the phone, yes. how many people did you go to call or message, and it was like, I don't work here anymore. That person doesn't work here anymore. All the time. Bad number or whatever. Yes. Yes. So, you what do you to, think you is to worry like about a, your dispositions? Yeah. What's an acceptable kind of bad data rate, Stephen, at this point in time? If, if if Richard and I are running modern sales organizations in 2024, what is what what would you sort of advise us as like an acceptable rate? Yeah. Well, I think on email specifically, you don't want to get above three percent bounce. Um, that is which very, is actually pretty very difficult. low. Richard. Yeah. Yeah. It's it it, it is pretty low. Um, 5% is where you really start to run into issues, but yeah, like the, these email service providers are getting smarter with detecting which email accounts are just created to send out a whole bunch of cold email. Um, and they typically have larger bounce rates. Like if you're, we always, when we talk about deliverability, think like if you're a real employee at a company doing like accounting, um, how many emails do you send out that bounce? It's it's pretty rare. It's like, oh, you email someone, you know, you used to work with, you thought they still work there and it bounces. Like it happens every now and then. But if you're getting like 10% bounce rate, that's a really big clue to the ESPs that you're kind of a spammer. Yeah, it's interesting too. And so then the, the question becomes, for, you know, this isn't, everybody knows this isn't a product pitch, I do think everybody also knows like this is a massively important topic. So I'm going to ask about the product, right? So with Wizza, are you then going back and revalidating legit company emails? Are you going back and validating their, you know, some people just put like their Gmail in there. Like, are you going back and doing all that too? Yeah. So, so we're not taking any of the sensitive info, like email address from the LinkedIn profile. We're just taking kind of the, the company information um, and then using other sources to figure out the email. But yeah, a big piece to our tech is what we call real-time verification. So if you look up Scott's info, what we do is we go to his LinkedIn, we check what the LinkedIn says today at that moment. Then we source the email address at that moment. And then the last step is an email verification. Um, so it'll take longer than other tools. Um, and people typically use our tool in like batches. So they'll build searches and right. get CSV files back that take some time because there are some steps and sometimes people don't want to wait 45 seconds, but the result is a less than 1% bounce rate. That's, um, that's the part. Less than 45 seconds. That takes time. That's called taking time. Scott. Yeah. That's called, you know, like, you know, remember, when, you know, Scott, you never even had to dial out of the phone book or the yellow pages. Like, <laughs> no, I didn't have to use the yellow pages. I, I I was fortunate enough to be around when the internet was out. Yes, you were. You were you were yeah. lucky. Yeah, you, I was you were quite lucky there. So um, so in that regards, right? So now here's here's an issue question. It feels like, and you can tell me not, you're in a fairly competitive space, right? Um, yeah. In terms of data and data entry or or data quality. How do you, as an organization, as you see things, right? How do you try not to get commoditized in general? Like there's a founder out there who's listening to you and they're like, okay, uh, you know, I think I've got this great thing. It does really well, like Wizza, it does great things, but I'm going to get commoditized. I'm going to get compared to everybody. 
right? Not even, I, I do want to hear like now how you address it, but how did you think about it in the beginning? Like, okay, here's here's what we're doing. We know we have something unique. We found a niche. How are we going to make sure we don't get lost in the noise? Like, what yeah. advice would you give a founder around that? Well, to be honest, when, when we first launched, it, you're, you're right. First of all, it is like ultra competitive space. Like every day I see a new data company out there. Um, so it's, it's very, very competitive. But when we first launched, um, I, I thought of it as something on the side, like was is going to be this kind of hopefully get to 10 K MRR and it'll sit on the side and be kind of side income. So even though that's not the best way to think to start a business, what helped was that we stayed in such a niche and didn't feel the need to expand out. So we were literally just the tool for if you want to export searches or lead lists out of LinkedIn sales navigator, come to Wizza. And so it was a function functionality that no others offered. Um, and so that's how we started to kind of get some traction and some product market fit within that, that use case. Um, so I think like being ultra, um, like fixing a, a very specific problem to kind of get the business started was was very helpful. And then expanding from there and, and learning, you know, what worked in, in this case, like the core problem, yeah, it was exporting from LinkedIn Sales Navigator, but the core problem the customers ultimately had was the data that they saw in Zoom Info or whatever tool they were using didn't match up with what was on LinkedIn. And so they wanted data that matched what LinkedIn said. Not that LinkedIn's always 100%, um, right. but they trust it a lot more and it's more accurate than the big data providers. Um, and so we kind of expanded from there. So yeah, I think like I think fitting into like a particular niche or, or use case is, is helpful. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that's, that's super important. Question around data, right? I've had this theory for a while and, you know, agree with you that LinkedIn feels like the single best source, right? And you have that. So um, if you're, I mean, if you're selling into tech, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, not necessarily the single God, best. I'm I'm sorry. Was it's I not necessarily the single best source if you're selling to, you know, plumbers. Right. <laughs> Scott, I, I was talking. Like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm aware. We have a interrupt worthy relationship. We do. So, uh, so my question for you now that maybe Scott made me forget it <laughs> um, is I've always had this theory that people needed two data providers because the data quality is is tough to come by. You are certainly providing something that feels more unique. What happens if one of the the large companies, like you know, let's let's talk about our our friends at, at you know ZI, they come around and they just do what you do how do you prevent that how do you because again like you know th this is the cool part about being nimble you're you're younger you're hungrier you're startup you know do all these things how do you anticipate prepare for something like that because again i'm thinking about founders who are like oh my gosh what about the bigger companies mm -hmm. yeah so i think specifically in the way our tool works um <laughs> It's not that it's impossible. I just think that the model for a company like ZoomInfo would have to totally change. Um, like I like, forty five seconds is not a huge time delay, but it's a it's an entirely different. Like we are not a 
database. We, there, there's no, you know, set data in WISA. If I look up your contact information today, we seek it out across the web in that moment and return it to you. So, so there's no, there's no static database behind our product. Um, it's not to say that that's something that ZoomInfo or, or like another big data player couldn't do. Um, I just think the way our tool was built was always structured around this kind of longer time delay. So people export lists, they get an email when the list is done. So it's like 45 seconds a lead. So that, that can add some time. Whereas the customers um, of a larger data provider, a lot of times they do want to build a list and see all the emails right then and there. They don't want to have to. Which makes back. no sense anyway, because, and let, let's make sure we're people, you know, so we've dropped some names. We're talking about WISA. So let's make sure that everybody knows we're talking about WISA the most in, in the sense of like anybody who thinks that those 45 seconds matter, in my opinion, doesn't understand their role because no matter how fast you get it, you still have to contact those people. And those 45 seconds are not going to be the part that wins you the business. And someone can mm -hmm. sit here and say, yeah, but I got there first. And I'm like, I don't want you to get there first. I want you to get there better. So, you know, so that's, I, you know, I, I find that that objection feels hollow to me. I don't know, Scott, what do you think? Is that a, a, a bullshit objection? I don't know if it's a bullshit objection, actually. I, I think there's some validity to it. It doesn't mean that you should allow it to be an excuse and it like cripples you and prevents you from getting anything done. But I don't think you can completely dismiss it as not being real or not existing. I don't know. That's how I feel about most complaints. Right. They're rooted in some sort of truth. Right. Yeah, I, again, but you still got to move forward anyways, right? Yeah, but it's like you get a list of 100 people. You're not calling all 100 of those. You're not emailing all 100 at once. Why? You are. Be, you better be good at it, to his point, you know, yeah. and the fact that with all the new rules, you want the more accurate data, right? Like I'm I'm selling Stephen for you. There you go. I do. <laughs> I do. I mean, if I have a list of 100 people, though, my first reaction is I'm going to call 100 people. and I'm But not immediately. No, 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 not instantaneously. And certainly not in like one power robo dialer calling a hundred numbers at once or sending a hundred emails at once. No. So, but my uh, intention, my intention is to, to get after all of them, assuming they're all somewhere in my ICP. Correct. Right. So Stephen, question for you, because you're in the space. You know, that's always important. You know, the new Google rules, the new Yahoo rules, right? I'm sure you get asked this daily. Mm -hmm. um, we always like to hear these opinions from different people because there's so many. And, you know, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? You know, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, if you're able to avoid the filters, it's going to be a net positive because there's going to be less spam in people's inboxes. But um, I, so when we started doing... SEO, I was learning all the different like pieces of SEO and how the Google algorithm works and they don't like to, you know, reveal exactly what plays into it. And what I found the best way to think about that was, was just create the best experience for the user and they stay on your page and, and, and everything funnels down to that. So I think it's the same thing for the ESPs for email deliverability, where 
you can you can kind of avoid these traps with like different like you know tricks and they're always changing and trying to keep up with the rule changes but i think the core idea is you don't want to look like a spammer and if you look at like what does a spam inbox typically look like versus what does a real employee at a company you know how how does that email outreach look like you know they usually create an email account maybe they get like a few internal emails the first week and they're not sending much out um, and then over time that slowly increases um, but most of their communication it's partially internal partially external so we we in our cold email campaigns like have really focused in on deliverability and all those kind of pieces warming up the inbox you know lower um, percentage of outbound emails versus um, you know internal emails um, and we've gotten really good success with that so um, yeah I mean I think yeah uh, looking like a real email account as a, as a real employee is a good rule of thumb to generally stay out of spam that's the first time I've heard somebody say that. And I think it's really smart. Look at the differences. Look at a real employee. So I really, I appreciate that. Scott, it also makes me think that we, we've got a new job. We could get hired by companies to go get hired by their competitor. And then we go to that competitor and we start just marking all their internal emails as fake. <laughs> I believe that this job exists. It has something to do with corporate espionage. Yes. So uh, this yeah. is not a novel thing. Yeah. I don't know how much it exists in the startup world, though. We, we would be taking it from a you know big, 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 big business yeah. all the way down to the. the That's world. what I'm saying, right? Like, so we could we could uh, go. And you want to name the company? Go Rogue. That's it. So even I'll, how do you feel about? Um, how do you feel about kind of getting started with sales and revenue generation and, and where do you land and how did you approach kind of the founder led selling stage? Is that something that you actively did? Did you throw your hands in the air and say, I'm not that guy. I need somebody straight away. Mm. How do you think about that? And what advice would you have for um, other entrepreneurs going through something similar? Yeah. Well, so I, as a kid, like always wanted to be an entrepreneur and always, you know, tried to create different businesses. My first software company was like iPad ordering at, at restaurants called Restaurant Solutions. I like that he said as a kid and I'm thinking like in school and he's thinking yeah, no. like yeah. a kid of like 20 something. Right? No, I was 16. I was 16. So much smarter oh, six, than we yes, yes. Yeah. So much smarter and so much more ambitious than we were. <laughs> yes. No, but so I went, I went like door to door to different restaurants with just like a wireframe trying to, trying to pitch this idea. Um, and, and slowly learned, you know, sales from some of these different like ventures I started on, but my first, uh, corporate job was that conference company. Um, and I was doing sales and it, and it felt like entrepreneurship just within a company. Um, and I just got addicted to the idea like I couldn't believe that I could just start in a role and start creating like revenue out of thin air just reaching out to someone cold and you know making deals um it was just like incredibly addicting so I always I always felt very passionate about sales um so when I left to create uh Wizza, it, it felt kind of natural that the way to ultimately grow the company would be to to do that through sales so a lot of yeah, to do it yourself yeah yeah so yeah you have a little bit different experience than some people who are very 
product oriented, engineering oriented, and they don't want anything to do with actually trying to monetize the product themselves. So how do you move then from, okay, you know, you've built this thing, you know how to sell it to, I think it's time for me to hire some people, teach them how to sell it. Was that difficult to kind of let go of that control a little bit, listen to other people? Is that like nails on a chalkboard when you hear them talking at first? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's honestly, it's incredibly difficult. I think I still deal with it. I, I think I still listen at like two X speed to almost every sales call um, we have. Um, and I, I think I probably do get to like nitpicky with like, oh, why'd you say it this way? Or like, I, I wouldn't have presented this like this. Um, so yeah, honestly, it's something I, I still struggle with, but I think what's helped is uh, we record every single sales call. So I've just done a ton, recorded them, um, recorded myself doing them while speaking over why I said this like this and whatever. Not that I need to, not that I'm perfect by any means, but um, yeah, I think just having done it for years. Um, All right. I got a couple of things. So one, I want to compliment you for recording your own calls. I hope you give them to your team and ask them to give you feedback. Cause I think that's smart. Mm-hmm. Scott, when you're working with a founder, talking to someone like Steven, he wants to grow, he wants to scale, and he's like Richard and has this little one part of a control freak piece where he can't let go of the of the cold call. He's listening to every single, not cold call, but every call. What advice do you give someone like Steven about learning how to let go? Not that they have to, but I'm curious, you know. Yeah. I mean, in general, you just can't expect people to ever be as good as you. And if they can do it even 80% as good as you, then that's good enough. And, and you've prob- you probably are better deployed spending your time elsewhere in the business. And mm-hmm. this is a little bit stage dependent, I suppose. But, you know, that's kind of the art of delegation is understanding if I hand this off to Richard, it's not going to be a hundred percent as good as if I did it myself and understanding that that's okay. Because while he was getting something to 80%, I was doing something else that was presumably productive. Mm-hmm. Right. And Richard hands me something that's at 80%. If I can make a couple quick, te- quick tweaks to bring it to 90 to hundred, that's massive productivity spike. Right. Um, and it's difficult. It's difficult for sales managers who listen to the reps and try to coach and train. It's difficult for VPs of sales who listen to their sales managers deliver feedback, let alone listen to reps. Right? So it's, it's pretty normal, but I think it's just an expectation tweak. I think we struggle with delegation because we always think, well, I could have done it better. Yeah, of course you could do it better. <laughs> There's only one of you, right? No. So, that's what you have to kind of think about is yeah. the other, I, if I removed myself and these people were doing 80% as good as I would do. And I could spend that time doing something else that moved the ball for us. Is that worthwhile? And usually the answer is yes. So, and Steven, I know you didn't ask for this advice, so I'll, I'll, I'll tag oh, those two. Um, yeah, he baited you into it. <laughs> yeah. So the, and this isn't much for listeners, right? As much as it is for, for, for you or anybody else, but um, 
part of the reason you're so good is that you are the co-founder. You get to walk into a call, a sales conversation with a title and a persona of a co-founder. And if that customer knows that, then they're going to raise their level of tolerance for you. Um, have you, you know, and I don't say that, I don't know that you're like, I'm the co-founder of so-and-so. Maybe that is your style. And if it works, keep doing it. Um, so that would be my only thing is just remind yourself that to Scott's point, like nobody's going to do it better than you. And that's one of the reasons those people are buying Steven. They are buying the co-founder as much as they're buying Wizza or any other thing. You, so, so, mm. um, so hopefully that was helpful. Otherwise we just patronized you for the last four minutes. To oh yeah. That's right. So, yeah. And there, there are things like roadmap or things like that, that you can speak to on a demo that you can't expect a sales rep to know exactly you know, every piece, uh, right. what's coming up and, and things yeah. like that. So, yeah. No, and and in some cases, you may not want them to because a they may not describe it the right way. It could change, and it's mm -hmm. different for them to make the call to say, "Oh, this changed," than for you to pick up the phone as the co-founder and say, "Look, you know, it's my mistake. It's not, you know what I mean? Like there's a there's a balance in there, mm -hmm. um, you know." So I, I totally respect that. So um, cool. So so, what's been your hardest challenge, like? You know, in terms of growing, where was where was the hump from? Let me ask you this question. When did you think you had product market fit? At what stage? How many customers was it? How many deals? How much user use? Like, how did you define product market fit? And do For you me, have... I, I just remember the moment because it felt like when we were at 20K MRR. Um, because, yeah, that, I, that at that point... I mean, we had probably an average customer spend of like 60 bucks a month or something. Um, so we had a large number of like monthly customers. Um, I was able to leave my job um, and I felt like we definitely had something here. Um, building it. Was that the goal? Was the goal to say, we know we'll have product market fit at that level? And what was the difference between you know, 15K MRR and 20K that made you go, we're here. Yeah, I, th I think it's just like a mental number for me. Um, but yeah, like I said, when we first started, like it was it was something I, I viewed as, um, you know, something on, on as like side income. Um, so I, I, I think that's just more so when my mentality shifted as, okay, there's a much bigger opportunity here than I realized because we scaled to that with a couple blog posts I had written. Um, I was still in a full-time job um, and some cold email campaigns. Um, so I knew there was where there was smoke, there was fire, I guess. Um, and so that's kind of where my mentality shifted and I left the job and kind of went all in. How much, how much, and then I'll let Scott interrupt me and ask a question if he likes. Um, how much of that product market fit was based on the, I can go do this and quit my job because I know my income won't suffer. Was yeah, I think, I think mentally that was a good piece. I mean, there's there a lot of things that I felt contributed to it. 
um, there was just like generally people's feedback was really, really strong. Um, there were ways of doing what we did, especially at the time, because our email finding was like not that great. We'd find like 30 to 40% of a search on sales navigator. Um, so there were ways you could, you could do it and, and, you know, use like a scraping tool and find the contact information. So I think when the feedback was so strong right away, again, I'd created like many businesses before that did not have product market fit. And I just knew that this felt different. It didn't feel like pushing like a boulder up a hill. It felt like pushing a boulder on like a flat ground or slightly declined. Um, so yeah, everything about it felt different, but I think that mental number definitely helped um, me realize, you know, this is something to, to kind of jump into full time. We got one last question for you and then we'll flip it over to you. You have had one business at least on LinkedIn that's been acquired. How do you know when the right time to sort of call it quits, cash out is? Because everybody that I've talked to reaches this point where they're like, you know, they have an offer for a dollar and they're like, man, if I kept going, I bet I could get to 10. And, you know, you're kind of like, is this enough? Do I keep going? Do I think I can get more? Am I being too greedy? Not many people, I think, talk about like, when is the right time? How do you know? Is there a certain signal that you look for? I'd love anything you could share about that experience and how you're applying it looking ahead. Yeah. So that was, that was very small and more of a, like a side project. Um, that was kind of jumping on opportunity during COVID uh, in Canada, you had to log every single person that entered a restaurant. So we made like a pretty quick, easy app that was like 50 bucks a month where um, you could you just scan a QR code and it automatically logged your contact details. Um, Scott, we, these simple ideas, like how are we so stupid? <laughs> Genius. Born the, we were born this way. We have poor <laughs> DNA. So that, that helped it in terms of knowing when to sell because we knew COVID wasn't going to be forever. Um, and again, it was something on the side. But um, Well, that's part of the problem. We thought we were entering the walking dead zone. <laughs> like old people and we're like oh we're gonna die if we go outside <laughs> it's all over yeah no but i i think now with was uh like thinking of if i would sell like i saw a warren buffett quote which is like the worst thing about selling your business is that now you have the problem that everyone else has which is trying to find a good business um, which is like what am i gonna do with my life yeah <laughs> um so yeah i mean i think um I don't feel anywhere close to wanting to, to sell with. I really don't know what I would do with my life. Um, but I, I it, from founder stories I've heard, it sounds like people reach maybe a point of burnout or, or want to, you know, explore something new. Um, and maybe at that point, but yeah, I don't feel, I don't feel close. You have to kids? That. You have kids yet? No. Yeah, there it is. That's <laughs> Big difference. Big difference. Maybe. Yeah, that is a big difference. Like, okay, yeah. I can go do this other stuff. I don't know. My general philosophy, as you know, Richard, is go for the register, not the vault. Right. Totally. So five uh, million yeah. is enough. Somebody shows up and offers me a particular amount. I'm out. I'm like, I'm out. 
Totally. I'm out. I'm out. Well, we appreciate you spending some time with us, Stephen. It's been fun getting to know you and learn a little bit about Wizza and, and your background, how you think about things. How can we be helpful to you, man? Do you have any questions for us? Yeah, I think kind of in the same vein around sales. So, um, so, so we, our average ticket price on like an enterprise deal is like five to 10 K. Um, wait, wait. So your average ticket price on an enterprise deal is five to 10 K. Yeah. We call it enterprise. It's, it's more sold to, to SMBs. Okay. 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 I understand. I understand now that's the name yeah. of like the plan or the, the package. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's typically not. There's a little uh, glitch in the matrix there for a second. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's not enough. So. <laughs> Two cents per user. Um, <laughs> um, I'm curious at like, as we've thought of ways to kind of continue to go up market, I, I guess you kind of have an idea of who, you know, the bigger competitors are and you're competing against long, you know, we're, we're a team of 15. Um, how do you think about, or how would you advise maybe moving up market versus staying kind of where we are, this SMB sort of company, smaller team, five to 10 K deals. Yeah. This, this, this is fairly easy for me, especially as an outsider, <laughs> but the answer is, do you feel like you've mastered the sale that you're doing right now where it's completely like repeatable and dialed in? And if you wanted to, you know, you could add X number of bodies and get Y amount of output. And if the answer is yes, this thing is mastered and kind of on autopilot and will continue to grow, then I think it's time to explore moving upwards a little bit. If the answer is no, we barely know how to tie our own shoes. Then to me, the answer is don't move into a new vertical, a new market, whatever, until you've mastered the first thing. Get good at the main thing before you decide to go try thing two. That's my general advice. Do, do you agree, Richard, or disagree? Yeah. Or somewhere in the middle. Now, I would not. I'll, I'll go a layer deeper and, and say, um, first thing you got to do is stop listening to all these sales calls. Because <laughs> this, this, But this is exactly what we're, Scott's talking about is like your time. If you're at this point of mastery, you're, this is what you should be spending your time on not listening to sales calls. It doesn't mean you can't listen to a couple here and there, like one or two a week. Then you decide, okay, well, what does up market look like based on the types of companies we sell to now? What verticals are we good at? And let's go talk to a bunch of those people. It's just like, as soon as people go up market, they kind of forget how they got in the first place, which was I talked to a hundred people, mm. right? Well, you got to do the same thing as you go up market because it's, similar but different right it's going to be a longer sales cycle you're going to have to go through different committees to get approved and purchased and there might be you know security issues and spam law and like you know there's this whole host of things that an smb or mid-market may not pay attention to mm. i also think you choose one vertical to try to go after right and you kind of look at it in terms of who are we really good at in this vertical and could that story expand easily? Mm. Right. Um, and, and maybe you can go after, maybe you can research too, but you can't research everything. But I think, you know, if you're at that level that Scott's talking about, this is where your time should be spent, not listening to sales calls. So mm. as your sales team listens to this, you know, we support you. 
we'll get Stephen off your back for you um, <laughs> if we can. Uh, I, don't, I, you know, Scott, would you if he's at that stage? Does that sound like the right thing? Like if someone wants to go up market, what is your advice around? Yeah, you know, other things to think about would be: Do you have personnel in place who have done that motion before? Mm. Or would the current personnel have to learn it? And if they have to learn it, who's going to teach it to them? Because depending on how far up market you try to go, it is a different sale and a different process, you know? And if you take somebody who's coming from an SMB sale and you stick them in a two-year sales cycle, mm -hmm. they're going to be like, what do I do? You know, especially without any kind of guidance, they might make a lot of mistakes, you know, along the way. So you know, that's another consideration is do we have the personnel and do we have the process in place to kind of, you know, upskill, train people and whatnot? Mm. And a lot of times the answer is no. You'll, I, I guarantee you, if you ask people, they'll say yes, that they're ready. Put, you know, put me in coach. But that doesn't mean that, you know, it's true. Right. So, And you're, and you're the secret weapon. Like you're used to doing this. You're used to knocking on doors and talking to strangers and you have this sort of founder-led sales skill that, you know, that a lot of founders I talk to, and I think Scott talks to, don't have that. So you're kind of the secret weapon of, I could figure this out. And when it's time to bring in someone to do it, you'd know what it would look like. Mm. Experience, at least that's my impression of you, you know, knowing you for the last 45 minutes. So. That's yeah. helpful. Yeah. Um, I have one more, good time. Sure. Bonus question. So, you you both obviously have great personal brands. Um, say you're CEO of a new company tomorrow. Uh, do you do you put any resources? You say you're starting from scratch. Do you put any resources into building a personal brand? Yes. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. And you're almost too late. If you a hundred, I mean a hundred million percent. Yes. Yes. So. You there is. I'll just say it. I actually think there is no better marketing channel for you right now or for Wizza than your personal brand hmm. and you becoming seen and, you know, notorious in a good way. Yep. And you, you know, everywhere there's an event of some sort, everywhere there's content, bang, there's Steven or bang, there's 15 people from Wizza. It, it performs better than SEO stuff. You know, that, that's what I think. Like it is demand gen mm. for you now. Yeah, I would. I, sorry. That's okay. I, yeah. I mean, there are people who work at companies whose personal brands are more popular than the company and more known. And therefore, I know your company only because I know that dude, Richard, who works there. Yep. Mm. And if you have the leader of the organization setting the tone and sort of opening up the kimono and saying, Hey, here's how I do everything. Everybody should copy me. That's fantastic because it's like free advertising all the time. Mm. Right. It helps with recruiting, helps with retention. It helps with sales. It helps with everything. So you are making a drastic mistake in ignoring it. Now, if you don't want to do it yourself, fine. Hire a ghostwriter, you know, hire somebody to manage these different channels for you but everybody on your team should be doing it and you should set the tone with that thing mm. that that was the one thing i was going to say was that in addition to you 
this is one of those things that you can have your reps doing. And, you know, the key piece of branding isn't about branding Wizza. It's about branding Steven. It's about branding Steven as a thought leader. It's about branding Steven as, you know, whatever you're, you are as a human being. And it can be in relation to what you do, but it doesn't always have to be about that, right? Like you could write stuff, all the stuff we asked you about founder-led sales. Every one of those could be a LinkedIn post, hmm. right? Learning how to delegate, right? Has nothing to do with wisdom, right? But if you frame it the right way of like, this is my challenge as a founder, I have a hard time letting go. There's going to be a thousand founders who agree with you, a thousand salespeople who agree with you. Your team's going to appreciate the fact that you got vulnerable. People you recruit are being like, wow, this guy really is trying to get better. And so it doesn't even have to do with wizards, as Scott mm. was um, Ironically, uh, this is actually the conversation I was just having with Michael before we got to this podcast. Like, oh, under really? the that those two things, like you were talking <laughs> about LinkedIn and how to use it and the algorithm and all this stuff. And so I was giving him some, some suggestions, you know, sort of hoping I'm like not patronizing the guy, but uh, he and I've had a nice little dialogue back and forth. So you can go say, what did Richard say? So, <laughs> yeah, I'll ask him. Richard. And, then, and then ignore it and let's go ask Scott. <laughs> <laughs> cool uh, we appreciate it once again steven you spending some time with us good luck to you good luck to wizza website is tell everybody what the website is so they can check it out w-i-z-o-w-i-z-a.com wow. there's so many websites similar he doesn't even know his own one say it one more time so everybody knows your website w-i-z-a.com <laughs> nice um, nice he had to think about it there a little bit yeah, yeah. that's fine yeah. good stuff <laughs> all right everybody we'll see you next time on the I got, I got one more. hey scott have you noticed the way steven's sitting his little purple hat is sitting oh on yeah the, the whole time i've noticed that i haven't yeah. noticed it till just it's like perfectly <laughs> positioned yeah 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 check us out on youtube to go see what we're talking about all right everybody we'll see you next time see ya thanks steven thanks